Last time we were together, I introduced our annual vision. Uh, let's say it all together, everybody, on the count of three. One, two, three. Use your powers for good. Use your powers for good. In response to that introduction, I received so many cool notes. Uh, people everywhere were seeing the idea of doing good. I got pictures of bumper stickers. Uh, somebody sent me a building in the Netherlands that has a large uh, banner of English writing on the outside that says, Go do good in English block letters. I was sent clips of Mike Rowe's show that he has about blessing those who do good. 9-11 uh, memorials, like this very powerful message sent by Brian Sweeney. I even received this note just yesterday. Uh, Wayne, we're in New Mexico visiting family. We went to a dinner party tonight. The people had this sign on their front porch, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. I shared with them this was the primary verse for our annual theme. Many, many, many awesome notes like that. But best of all was this quilt. This quilt was lovingly made by a friend of mine. It sports, uh, it sports children dressed up as superheroes in various acts of doing good. It's a small kid's quilt. Isn't that awesome? Made for this, and we rejoice. This is what it's about, folks. This is, this is what we're about in this series and our annual vision. Let me walk you through the theme for our study. Here's what this study is all about. Our default setting of selfishness combines with a world that craftily manipulates good intentions, and all the while Satan actively battles our discipleship. The result is that doing good is is not always very easy, thankfully. God's Spirit makes us more than conquerors whose tombstones really can read this one, used God's empowerment for good. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. May it be so. And one verse in the prophets perfectly summarizes that theme. Read it with me again. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, line by line. Let's read it together. Mankind, He has told you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's the verse we're going to study. Today we're going to especially focus on this first of our triad commands, to act justly. Today we're going to learn how to do social justice. And we're going to start by learning about the first Gandalf. Okay? Get this. J.R.R. Tolkien's great hero, Gandalf the Great, did you know this? He was inspired by a previous hero. Nathaniel Hawthorne had earlier developed a mysterious superhero called the Grey Champion. It's in his wonderful collection, The Twice Told Tales. And Hawthorne took his inspiration for the Grey Champion straight out of the Bible. Here's the scene in Hawthorne, okay? Fifty years after the pilgrims had begun the colony, unrighteousness is, is taking over New England. Especially oppressive are a combination of government and social forces that have aligned against all the Christians who are in the independent churches. Hawthorne describes the, the danger to freedom. He describes the piety of this oppressed populace. And then he gives this scene, the climactic moment of the story. In a show of force intended to cow the people, the British governor begins riding with a regiment through the streets of Boston. And then out of nowhere steps this old man. Fantastic text. Let me, let me read it to you. Meanwhile, the venerable stranger, staff in hand, was pursuing his solitary walk along the center of the street. As he drew near the advancing soldiers, and as the roll of their drum came full upon his ears, the old man raised himself to a loftier mane, while the decrepitude of age seemed to fall from his shoulders, leaving him in gray but unbroken dignity. Now he marched onward with a warrior's step, keeping time to the military music. Thus the aged form advanced on one side, and the whole parade of soldiers and magistrates on the other tell, when scarcely twenty yards remained between them, the old man grasped his staff by the middle and held it before him like a leader's truncheon. Stand! cried he. 
The eye, the face, and attitude of command, that solemn yet warlike peal of that voice, fit either to rule a host in the battlefield or to be raised in God in prayer, were irresistible. At the old man's word and outstretched arm, the roll of the drum, drum was hushed at once, and the advancing line stood still. Isn't that awesome? Now we better understand Gandalf's later cry, You shall not pass, right? Now that makes a whole lot more sense. In Hawthorne's story, the great champion stops the injustice. The very next day, the glorious revolution puts William and Mary on the throne of England. That guarantees the justice of religious liberty for all British citizens, including those in oppressed New England. It's a great short story, just a great story. Researcher Jess Nevins, in his book, The Evolution of the Costumed Avenger, he calls the man in the gray cloak the first superhero in American literature. Hawthorne ends the story with this. Listen to how he ends the story. Long, long may it be ere he comes again. His hour of one of darkness and adversity and peril, but should domestic tyranny oppress us or the invader's step pollute our soil, still may the gray champion come. For he is the type of New England's hereditary spirit, and his shadowy march on the eve of danger must ever be the pledge that New England's sons will vindicate their ancestry. All God's people said. Don't you wish you could have read that in school instead of the scarlet letter? <clears throat> Nathaniel, amen. Nathaniel Hawthorne was was rather wise, and he was a pretty good student of Scripture. His great champion is Micah chapter 6, verse 8, lived out. This, the great champion is exactly what we all want to be, what God empowers us to be, what, what the world needs us to be. So, look at the question in your notes. Uh, you got a bulletin when you came in, right? Open it up. There's notes there. On the left-hand side, you'll see this question. What do great champions do? What do they do? Well, first and most importantly, they worship God. We learn this in the fifth book of the Bible. Please open your Bible to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Go to chapter 10, and let's read verses 12 and 13. 12 and 13 of Deuteronomy 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God by walking in all His ways, to love Him, and to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul? Keep the Lord's commands and statutes I'm giving you today for your own Good. Stop there. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13 is the first statement of the Micah 6-8 idea, and it begins with worship. Now, this is very important and also very rare. Quite frankly, the people who usually get excited about justice very rarely start with worshiping God. In fact, I have had people tell me that I'm wasting my time by founding my idea of justice in worship. Here's what I say in response. If one doesn't start with the worship of the immutable God, one's idea of justice will inevitably mutate to a point where it is no longer just. If you don't start with worship of the unchanging God and His character, your idea of justice will inevitably devolve until it is no longer justice at all. That's why we must start here with worship. After all, this is where Micah started. Look, look, look up the slide. Micah 6.8 uses much of the exact same terminology as Moses because he's constructing Micah 6.8 on the foundation of Deuteronomy. Just one example. I don't have time to go into all of them. But notice that Moses ends his passage with good, the Hebrew word uh, tob. And then Micah picks that up and he begins his parallel discussion with the same word, good, tob. Do you see that? To understand Micah, we have to realize that he is building on what the great prophet Moses said in Deuteronomy. My friend Paul Collette sent me a great summary. This is from Rabbi David Foreman. Moses' audience is Israel. While Micah's is all humankind, Moses ends with good, Micah starts with good. Thus, it seems that Micah is explaining God's good for all humanity, close quote. 
Here's the right definition of good for all humanity. You do justice. How is that done? By first and foremost, walking with God, worshiping Him in every aspect of your life. Great champions worship God, and they watch out for those who can be easily mistreated. Read read the next uh, few verses. Start at verse 14. The heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord was devoted to your fathers and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the peoples as it is today. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, mighty, awesome God, showing no partiality, taking no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. You also must love the foreigner since you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. You were to fear Yahweh your God and worship him. Remain faithful to him. Take oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and awesome works your eyes have seen. Do you notice how the worship of God runs all through that passage? You can't take care of those in need unless you are first focused on Yahweh. And worship of Yahweh inexorably leads to care for people. The fatherless and the widows are specifically singled out here. By the way, we know from other passages, this isn't just anybody whose whose husband has died. Uh, This is someone who alone cannot take care of her property and all of the the fight and legal battles that are involved in probate. The big idea is caring for people who are easily oppressed. Psalm 82.3 summarizes it for us really nicely. Uh, Read with me. You take the underlying text. Psalm 82, verse 3. Provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Amen. Watch out for. Take care of those who are easily overlooked or mistreated. This is a huge theme in all of the prophets. In fact, it's an idea that's almost as old as Israel itself. One of the greatest heroes in history is this dude, Boaz. I love Rembrandt's little sketch of him. You can learn all about Boaz in the book of Ruth. Here's the big takeaway about Boaz for today. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, Boaz is described as, I quote, a prominent man of noble character. Uh, other translations render that uh, man of standing or man of wealth. The Hebrew is Gebauer Chayil. Gebauer Chayil literally means a powerful force for good. Powerful force for good. This is what the world got to see in the aftermath of our recent storms. People taking care of those in need. It's where we get the idea of gentlemen. And gentlewoman, although sadly our forefathers' gentlewoman, that term didn't make it out of the 18th century. But they were on to something with those terms. Gentle people are men and women who unashamedly use their force according to God's design. They use their power for good. And of course, look at your text, foreigners are often among the most needy. Now I want you to look here at the key word in Deuteronomy 10, 18, ger. Ger means a stranger, listen, who clearly wants to live by Israel's law. It is a very specific term. It comes into English rather sloppily. Foreigner, sojourner, those are fine, but they are incapable of capturing the most important aspect of Ger. Ger is a person who wants to live among the Israelites and willingly chooses to abide by all the Hebrew law. If you want to understand Ger better, you should probably contrast it with another Hebrew word used for foreigner, zar. Uh, Zar means the er the earliest examples of Zar we have is someone with unauthorized entry, illegal entry. That's what it meant. Uh, It came to mean an unlawful foreigner and enemy. Here's the contrast. Look, Deuteronomy 10. Yahweh executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, loves the ger, giving him food and clothing. Isaiah 1.7. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, Zar, foreigners, devour your land. It is desolate. It is overthrown by Zar foreigners. 
right? You must follow God's word, which has provisions about the kind treatment of the ger. You must not take care of the czar. This is real biblical social justice. Now, look at the question on the right side of our notes, the right side of our notes. Why does justice matter so much to God? I see two big things that jump out from Scripture, two great reasons. Number one, justice fits his perfect character. That's what we saw in Deuteronomy 10. That's why we must start with worshiping his character if we really want to be people who do justly. (laughs) Why else would Moses emphasize that God takes no bribes? Yahweh shows no partiality because he is holy and no one else is. That's what's so laughable about U.S. senators playing around with a test that would disqualify anyone uh, from public service if they come from a Christian tradition. What a riot of an idea. Not only is that unconstitutional, Christians are the only people who believe that justice is truly blind. They believe justice is rooted in God's character, and thus justice must not be violated for anything. Not personal gain, not popularity, not peer pressure, not even some supposed greater good. Only justice grounded in God's character can be just for everyone. Only justice grounded in God's character can be just for everyone. Second, justice brings widespread prosperity to people. That's why God likes it so much. Proverbs 29 verse 4 pithily uh, states the truth. The king gives stability to the land by what, everybody? Justice. But a man who takes bribes overthrows it. Corruption, bribes, backroom deals, they bring an entire country down. Justice provides the stability that's needed for personal enterprise, growth, trade. It is absolutely essential for true freedom and prosperity. We have now been working as a church with Hesed Ministries in Uganda for almost 20 years. And in those years, the poverty and the unemployment levels continue to decline, and Uganda is a little bit healthier every year. I've seen it, a little healthier every year. And the reason's very simple. It's very simple. Because of the spread of Christianity and because of the spread of education, more and more people recognize the most important thing that they need to know to be prosperous, and that is that justice is more important than raw power. Justice is more important than raw power, and more and more people learn that every year in Uganda, and as a result, corruption continues to decline. Uh, Bob Goff has also been in Uganda. He's working through different channels than we do to the same ends. We train pastors. He works within the legal system. If you want to see how justice can change a country, I highly recommend Bob's wonderful book, Love Does. So, if doing right is so important, if it matters so much to God and it has such an impact on people's lives, why can it be so tough? As we ask in the notes, what makes it hard to stand for justice? I talked with some very wise friends of mine about this, and we came up with five reasons, five scriptural reasons it can prove hard to do justly. First comes self-righteousness. This part's really convicting. You may want to go to the bathroom right here. Um, Leave Deuteronomy, if you would. Go back to Micah. Go to to our, our, our theme verse, Micah 6, 8. But let's go to the context, the immediate context for verse 8. So Micah 6. And let's read verses uh, 6 through 7. Micah 6, 6 through 7. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with your old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the child of my body for my own sin? Okay, this is, in the delightful tradition of Hebrew writers, this is a text that is dripping with sarcasm. Okay, it's very sarcastic. 
This is a person who is trying to be justified before God, trying to be righteous and do righteousness himself. Look, he starts by wondering if he should bring sacrifices to the altar, earn his justification. And then he thinks, oh, maybe, maybe I can earn my justification by bringing the most expensive kind of sacrifice, which was a yearling calf. And then he thinks, oh my goodness, what if I bring what would be the equivalent of a lifetime fortune? What if I bring a whole flock of just the male rams from my flock? Or maybe something not even a king could afford, rivers of oil. Or possibly my firstborn child would be enough to make me right before God. But none of that's enough. It's sarcasm. Humans are inherently sinful. No mere human sacrifice, no effort can make us right before God. Being just before God has always been by God's grace through faith. Way back, Genesis 15, 6, the principle was laid down for all eternity. Read it with me again. Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Thank you. Belief in God has always been the only way for sinful humans to be made right, and that belief is specifically focused on the provision of God the Son. Micah 6-7 is sarcastic about humans sacrificing their kids because it's unnecessary. Much later, Micah describes how God would do what no mere person could or should do. Yahweh gave up His Son to pay for the sins of all who would trust him. Jesus paid the justice price that had to be paid for our sin. And then God the Son rose from the grave so that all who believe in him would have everlasting life made right before God. All God's people said? We cannot make ourselves righteous. All that effort you see in Micah 6, 6 through 7 is worthless. That's why Micah 6, 8 answers walk humbly with God, something we'll discuss in a few days. Verse 8 is a contrast to verses 6 through 7. If we try to be self-righteous, we will never live true justice. This is really important. I hope you realize self-righteousness is a very serious problem in this age. Very serious problem. Second reason we struggle to live justly is the weight of a self-perpetuating cycle of corruption. Ecclesiastes 5.8 describes this horrible norm in human societies. If you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province... Don't be astonished at the situation because one official protects another official and higher officials protect them. Ugh. Sometimes it seems hopeless, doesn't it? You, you point out injustice only to have those with authority cover it all up. This painfully frustrates us when we look at huge injustices like, uh, like human trafficking all around the world. This is what angers us when government or, or school or, or a police power is abused and then it's covered up, right? It drives us crazy. Self-perpetuating corruption is a serious pain for all people. It is a serious pain, especially for those in public service work. Uh, policemen and teachers are the ones I hear from the most who are very frustrated by Ecclesiastes 5.8. Just, just think about being a teacher. Suppose you're a teacher, okay, and you catch a student cheating on homework. It's a very clear violation, and you punish appropriately accordingly. And that's good, right? That's justice. It's justice for the institution. It's, it's righteousness for the life of that student. It's good for everybody, right? Well, only if it's allowed to play out justly. You see, parents can get really riled up. And believe it or not, parents will often lie just to protect their child. I know, I know it's not protecting the child. It's actually harming the child, but that's not how it looks to the parents. This happens all the time. And then are we surprised when teachers get cynical and they quit even caring about right and wrong and we can't get enough teachers to fill our education positions? You see, the weight of cyclical corruption is really, really heavy. And sometimes, uh, look in your notes, it's sometimes conjoined to another barrier to righteousness. I, I call this one unbiblical anthropology disguised as justice. 
Uh, this is something I saw all the time as a young Native American when I was growing up in Oklahoma. Uh, let me set the scene for you. Long before I was born, it was very popular to see the Bureau of Indian Affairs as acting justly when they condescended toward the popular mindset. There was a popular mindset that decided that, uh, that Native Americans, Aboriginal Americans, are less than fully human. That unbiblical anthropology led in the 19th century to an incredible evil, the gear. The five civilized tribes who wanted to live according to the laws of America, they were forced on a horrific trail of tears. Unbiblical anthropology that everyone at the time called justice. Now, by my day, things had completely flipped to an, a, a ridiculous folly that is the equal stupidity of what happened before. By my day, it was considered just to offer guilt money to the many, many times great-grandchildren of Indians because, get this, here's the key, they're still seen as incapable. And this has robbed generations. I've seen this all my life. It has robbed generations of any motive to work. It has led to astoundingly high rates of alcoholism and suicide. Such nonsense always hinges on one big factor. Bad human anthropology supplants God's Word. Okay? And it happens in churches and seminaries, not just governments. For example, when supposedly Presbyterian Princeton Seminary disinvited Presbyterian Pastor Timothy Keller, they did so because he was, and here I quote their words, unjust. What about Tim Keller was unjust? Well, he sees identity theology as unscriptural, which it is. Don't worry if you don't understand identity theology. You'll get it from this quote. Listen to this analysis. Case Thorpe, he's a pastor, and he said this. Identity theology breaks down the communal cohesion and deep unity that Jesus and the Apostle Paul sought to establish. Paul writes in Romans 15, 17, I glory in Christ. Paul highlights the significance of identity in the Lord or in Christ some 160 times in his letters to Roman believers. Jesus was seeking a unified community while Paul built stable fellowships in the multi-ethnic Roman urban centers. This was not only a theological move rooted in the incarnation, but it was smart community building from which today's Christianity benefits. Identity theology, by contrast. Identity theology perpetuates the Enlightenment's failed promise, here's what it is, in which true meaning rests within someone's understanding of himself. The arbiter of truth is your feeling about yourself. That's identity theology. Back to his quote. Those who cling to this mode of thinking lead behind a God-centered study for a radical focus on humanity. That amounts to anthropology, the Greek word anthropos meaning human, not theology. Theos is God. He closes like this. Today's identity theology merely replaces Northern European male cisgendered theology with another set of adjectives seeking to exercise power over others in the name of justice. But this is a false justice because it lacks the divine righteousness that gives meaning to all lesser forms of justice. Isn't that well said? It's a false justice because it lacks, it lacks the divine righteousness that gives meaning to all lesser forms of justice. Call it a retribution theology, a form of tribalism at its worst, close quote. Very well said. Here's what happens. That misuse of the term justice it beats us down, right? It just beats us down until we give up on justice altogether. Another thing that derails our push for justice is that injustice seems to succeed. It does. A couple pages earlier in your Bible, Micah chapter 3, actually it's just one page in mine. Go to Micah chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Listen to this, leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice, who pervert everything that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. Stop there. 
We'll leave his following prophecy and just focus on the wretched honesty here. On earth, it often pays to be unjust. Even in theocratic Israel, people became leaders by perverting what is right, cutting corners, misusing people. That's how a person gets ahead. All walks of life are tainted with the reality, and let's be honest, cheaters often win. This is a major theme in Micah and the prophets, and they call on people to listen to the truth that God requires of you to act justly. He will hold all people accountable. Injustice will not prosper forever. J.R.R. Tolkien understood this, this, uh, this struggle, and he captured it brilliantly. Uh, in his book, The Two Towers, here's the scene. Uh, Frodo and Sam are in a, a place called Ithilien that used to be this beautiful garden, and it's now been defaced by evil that's running over Middle-earth. They come up on this statue that was this beautiful, noble statue of, a, of an excellent, awesome earlier king, but the statue has been defaced. The orcs have put horrible symbols on it, and they've actually cut the head off the statue. And it's this, it's this powerful moment of pain because it represents just the triumph of evil, that injustice wins, it wins, the head is gone. But then, as they're walking on, Frodo and Sam find the head of the statue back in the brush. And Tolkien gives this beautiful passage. Look what he says. The eyes were hollow and the carven beard was broken. But about the high stern forehead there was a coronal of silver and gold. A trailing plant with flowers like small white stars had bound itself across the brows as if in reverence for the fallen king. And in the crevices of his stony hair a yellow stone crop gleamed. And then something really, really majestic happens. The evil clouds of oppression that are taking over Middle Earth at that time, they part just enough that a shaft of sunlight comes through and it lands right on the head of the fallen king. And Frodo is so moved that he stands up and he says, they cannot conquer forever. Oh, it's awesome scene, right? This is why Micah rallies us past the barrier of, of seemingly successful wrong. Late in Micah, chapter 7, verse 8, he says this, Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. I don't know of a more powerful truth to remember when justice seems perverted. And notice, by the way, that it is God's light. He is the power behind setting all things right, which takes us to the final barrier to living righteousness, our tendency to try and act in God's stead. I'm sure none of you can relate to this. <clears throat> We started this series in Romans chapter 12. Do you remember verse 19? Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. If I'm going to use my powers for good, I must stop living according to the base sin setting of acting like my own God. This has been so hard for me to learn. I don't need to fix every problem. I don't need to comment everything that I think. Justice is a big deal to God. Even as we do justly, even as we fight for right, and we should... Let's leave it all in his hands. All God's people said? Now, I know what you must be thinking. In that Gandalf voice that you like to use inside your head, you're asking right now, how does one go about doing and acting justly? Great question. Thank you for asking. I really appreciate your focus on the practical. Thank you. Um, let's wrap it all up together in four steps. Four steps. First, seek God. As we learned earlier in Deuteronomy 10, this is where you must start. Proverbs 28.5 gives a great encapsulation. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. I love the classic proverbial parallelism here. Look at it. Not to seek the Lord is equated with evil. To seek the Lord is the only way to really grasp justice. 
This is true because God is perfectly just and nothing else, nothing else is. No policy, no party, no cause, no person. Only God is truly just. So seek God. Step two, do right in your daily life. Do right. This idea obviously runs all through the Bible. Let me just give you a few major expressions. First, speak truth. Speak truth. Your Bible's still open to Micah 3, right? Uh, the verse before what we read, verse 8, Micah 3, 8 says this, As for me, however, I'm filled with power by the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion and to Israel his sin. We just read in Micah in, in, in verses 9 and 10, the people who seem to get ahead in Israel are liars. But Micah is engaged with God and he speaks truth. Christians are commanded to speak truth in love. Folks, without honesty, there can be no genuine justice. Do right in your daily life by speaking truth and don't break laws. Romans chapter 13 is patently clear. Verse 1, everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. Don't break the law. <clears throat> Do right in your daily life by speaking truth. Don't break the law. You want to act justly? Obey. And here's another one for you. Give a fair pay promptly. Give fair pay promptly. Do you know Deuteronomy chapter 24 equates late payments with oppression? Do you know that? It does. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he's one of your brothers or one of the ger, one of the soldiers who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages, and in those days they paid every day on the same day before the sun sets. Pay your debts. To not do so is unjust. Let me just give you one more part of doing right in your daily life. It's something I never thought I would have to say in a church. Don't take what isn't yours. Don't take what isn't yours. Everybody knows that, right? Well, apparently not. Look at this. This study by the Barna Group was very disturbing. It's titled, A New Generation of Adults Bends Moral and Sexual Rules to Their Liking. I want you to listen to this summary. Born-again Christians were somewhat less likely than the population at large to illegally download music, to smoke, to view pornography, gamble, or to use profanity. However, young believers were actually more likely than non-believers to try to get back at someone and to have stolen something. Yikes! I, Christians are more likely to steal? What? But I'll tell you, I went back and I checked the methodology and the results seem legit. So, to all of the thousands of wonderful young Christians who study with us around the world, please listen up. Don't steal. It's wrong. Okay? Do right instead, Dudley. All right. How does one go about acting justly? Seek God. Do right. Thirdly, don't let the enormity of the task defeat you. Remember those texts we looked at that described those seemingly overwhelming problems, the, the cycles of corruption that just appear insoluble? They're just defeating David understands that pain. I, folks, in case you don't know this, David endured incredibly unjust persecution. And he gives us this advice, Psalm 37, do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong, for they wither quickly like the grass and wilt like tender green plants. Trust in the Lord and do what is what, everybody? Do what is good. Do what is good. Sure, injustice is frustrating, but things are never hopeless. We can always trust God and do good ourselves, even if no one else does. For example, a friend wrote me this. Um, said, Wayne, I recently watched Walking with the Enemy. I haven't seen the movie, but I really like this quote. Walking with the Enemy on Netflix. It's the story of one man's struggle to save Jews in Hungary as Hungary was realizing they had climbed in bed with the devil. Those around him struggled with the seeming impossibility of saving so many people. He clung to the idea that saving even one was worth the effort. 
and he repeatedly placed himself in the lion's mouth to pull someone else out. Beautiful. We need to be like that. This is why it's so important that we support groups that fight for true justice. People like our church missionaries on that wall out there, they feel this weight. They feel the weight of of the task and the enormity of injustice, and they need our support to be reminded all the time to trust the Lord and keep doing good. Received a great note about this from Cindy Sharp of our pulpit team. Cindy wrote and said, Wayne, as humans, our perspective is limited. It's easier to let a worldly view convince you that your small act of goodness is just like one tea in a sea sea of evil, evil which is painfully apparent. That's easier to do than to faithfully cling to God's perspective where a few fish feed multitudes. We need to stand fast on what we know to be true. All God's people said? And that call for perspective takes us to step four. Step four is take the long view. There are two parts to taking a long perspective about justice. First, remember that God will reward Christians. Read with me Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Everybody together. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Thank you. God wants us to be motivated by many things, including rewards. We will see eternal fruitfulness if we will just keep on keeping on. The second aspect of taking a long view is knowing that those who who sin are held accountable. Look look again, David's words in, in Psalm 37. They'll wither. They'll be scorched on earth and or in eternal judgment. These two parts of the long view, rewards and corrections to come, they were the driving force behind one of the greatest musical movements in human history. The songs called Negro Spirituals are amazing. They reminded millions of oppressed people what you and I are learning from the text today. By the way, do you know those songs gave birth to jazz, blues, rock and roll, and ultimately hip-hop music. It all takes its roots back to the Negro Spirituals. Mr. Wilson my wonderful elementary school music teacher, whom I shall never forget, he had us memorize dozens of those Negro spirituals because he saw them as very, very brilliant and deeply impacting American culture. He was also a believer in Jesus Christ, and he liked the message. You know what those songs do? They especially teach us to take a long view toward justice. The movie 12 Years a Slave captures this so brilliantly. I want you to watch a little clip from this film and I want you to see the change in the main actor. Watch the change. Went down to the river Jordan where John baptized three. When I walked the devil in hell said Johnny baptized me. Roll, 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 roll,
By the way, in the ethos of those songs, the Jordan uh, doesn't usually represent the river in Israel. It, it represents the crossing of this short life into eternity. So roll, Jordan, roll is the, the crossing into from this tiny little life into what lasts forever. Those who focus on the long view of life to come, they act the most justly here and now. They also best handle the injustices of this earth. And that's what that movie brings out so nicely. That character, he became an incredible force for good. But it could only happen after he let go of his self-righteousness and his self-righteous anger. And he instead adopted God's long view of grace. Then he became an amazing force for freedom and good. If you're not ready for the coming judgments, you cannot be a force for good. You cannot be a force for justice today. Let's pray about that. Father, I pray for anyone who is studying with me that does not know Jesus as Savior. I beg you to draw them to you right now. Let their soul arise as they get a glimpse beyond the Jordan of a God who judges and must because he's holy, of a God who grants mercy for those who trust. As we talked about earlier, friend, Jesus came to this earth as God the Son. He died to pay the justice price that had to be paid for your sin and mine so that everyone who believes in him could, could be resurrected to everlasting life. Trust Jesus right now. Believe in him as your Savior. There's no magic formula. This isn't paganism. Just talk to God who loves you and who is here. Believe on Jesus. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand. Go ahead and act. Do good. Your first act of doing good as a really made just person. Good for you. Father, I pray for all of us, new and long-term Christians, that you will give us a long view of justice. And thus we will act justly every day. In Jesus' name, amen.